If you are here as a first-time reader or you are here as a part of the Faulkner Certificate Program, we welcome you. Today, we are going to look a little bit deeper into one of America's most studied novels, The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner. Welcome to the Codex Cantina, where I am Una. I am both part of the Faulkner Certificate Program and a first-time reader crypto. If you are new to the Before You Read series, what we do is we go heavy into detail, bringing out a lot of the hidden interpretations and meanings. We want to arm you with information that could help you interpret and grab more meaning out of this book. I think that Mr. Faulkner would agree with you there as well, Una. The legend goes that Faulkner's literary agent, Ben Wasson, claims that he came in one day and he threw down a large envelope stuffed full of papers and he said, read this one, bud. It's a real son of a bitch. And before leaving, he added... This one is the greatest I'll ever write. Just read it. <laughs> yeah, greatest novel ever. We'll leave that for you to decide, but it is for sure many people's favorite. My experience is that this is one that gets better with each read. My first read through, there's so much going on. I wasn't able to make a lot of the connections that you kind of need to with how things are just organized so differently in this novel from any other novel I've ever read before. Yeah, I'd say that there's probably no way, wrong way to read this one except for reading it only once. So let's go through the scope for today's video, which is going to arm you with what you need and then have a video series to kind of guide you along on this path. We're going to go through the publication information behind this book and some of the biographical elements that come out. We're going to go through some Yaknapatafa reading order. More on that when we get to that section of what the heck does that word mean? <laughs> Why the text is so important. Faulkner warnings to know before starting this book. And then we're going to talk some more about the narrative consciousness and major themes that really make this book shine compared to some of his other works even. And then the road ahead, what to expect with this series. So we'll start off with publication information. The time frame is the 1920s. Great Depression is going on. 1928, Faulkner is 30 years old. He's not doing the greatest. He's not the superstar writer that we know him as now. He needs money. He needs to be successful. One thing to note here is that most historians will give a date of around fall, August, September, October. Of course, we have the great stock market crash that signifies a true start to the Great Depression. But it had been going on for, for many, many months and even years for the farmers. And writers and artists are also feeling the burden of the Great Depression before that actual magic crash day in 1929. So Faulkner is trying to get published. Some of the works that came before The Sound of the Fury, he got this letter right as he was working on this from Horace Livewright. My chief objection is you don't seem to have any story to tell, and I contend that a novel should tell a story and tell it well. So this absolutely devastated William Faulkner. This was critical for actually driving him. Before he was writing for others, now he started to realize that the story needed to come from him. His story needed to come out. And I'm actually wearing my William Faulkner shirt right now that says, if the story is in you, it has to come out. And this started like this great prolific era of As I Lay Dying, Light in August, Sanctuary, The Sound and the Fury. All these great works came probably from a lot of drive that William Faulkner felt from this rejection and the great pressures being felt at the time as a writer. Yeah, I feel like that you kind of have to know that he was driven by this negative motivation and without it, he may have never written arguably his, his greatest work ever. But the legend says that his original manuscripts were actually written in color, coded, depending on what time era you were in. And because of some of the pressures from the publishing world, he was forced to kind of just go to one color, black, and he had to use italics to kind of tell you, not that time was shifting, but it, I'll use William Faulkner's words himself, 
I purposely used to italics for both actual scenes and remembered scenes for the reason, not to indicate the different dates of happenings, but merely to permit the reader to anticipate a thought transparency, letting the recollection postulate its own date. And you're going to see, since you have, if you haven't read this yet, particularly section one with Benji, you're going to jump around even mid-sentence, where you start off in one decade in the sentence, and by the end of the sentence, you're in a different decade with different people around the main character. We're going to go through heavy detail in our first video with the timelines to help kind of break that down for you. So for biographical elements, William Faulkner's father, Murray, was described as constantly cold and distant, and his mother, Maud, always favored him amongst the four children. Now you're going to notice when you go into this story, there's a favorite child, and you're going to notice that the parents are incredibly distant and cold. These are some of the biographical elements where William Faulkner is not able to necessarily write why they are those ways. Like if you're searching for those answers, you're not going to get them, but you're going to get the effects of that and how that could impact these children growing up through the decades. Yeah, I think that he's obviously drawing from his own life experiences here. We know that William Faulkner was partly raised by an African-American help, Mammy Burr, and that is written in there, obviously, as Dilsey in terms of caring for the children and taking care of them. And then Caddy was always described as kind of the daughter or sister that he never had. So you always have these different views of her, a male view of her, and the impacts that she can have on a family. I think as a result, we see a lot of complex characters. Uh, they're all very compelling based on real people. And he's also creating a mythos for some of those people that never truly existed of what he just wanted himself. So for Yakna Patafa reading order, this novel is actually really easy because you'll notice a lot of sites will recommend this is the first William Faulkner novel to pick up. And I can't argue, but I must give you warnings that particularly the first few sections, the Benji section, and to an extent Quentin too, absolutely kills some people. They don't even want to finish the novel after. They don't even know what they read after that first time on a first read-through. And I get it. I was there with you. My first pass-through, I did not enjoy it as well. I had to go back and really put some elbow grease into this to finally pull some of the meaning out. We're hoping to arm you with some of that information to help you get through that a little bit more smoothly. And ultimately enjoy and get more out of the book. So no, you don't need to read anything else. True statement. But I would recommend at least considering checking out That Evening Sun, which is like a 10 or 11 page short story on the Compson family. And the reason I say that is that you get a little bit more of a window into who the family members are and how they're related. Because that first section, Benji's just going to chuck you right in that deep end. And that's okay. <laughs> you can still enjoy it that way. I'm just recommending if you have the time, consider reading That Evening Sun to give you a, a better overview of what you're getting into with the Compson family. I think that reading The Sound and the Fury first gives you a better understanding of Quentin's character and you become a little bit more sympathetic to him. So then when you read Absalom, Absalom next, it just helps you put more pieces together. I don't think there is one required before the other, even though The Sound and the Fury was published first. And of course, you can always check out our Absalom, Absalom uh, before video and entire series. This is going to be nothing like James Joyce, where you have to read an entire biography and history of Catholic Church to understand one of his novels, right? <laughs> yeah, not quite as uh, bad as Joyce. So why is this text so important? Why is it loved by so many? Let's start with the title, The Sound and the Fury, which is borrowed from Shakespeare's Macbeth. I'll put the soliloquy up there on the screen. But near the end, we're going to get to this quote where it says, told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So if you believe that this started as a short story and William Faulkner really wanted to tell this story from an idiot, a person who was stopped developmentally at a young age, almost like a child innocent like eyes, why? Why would he do that? 
In a letter to Gene Stein, he tells us, and I quote, By the time I explained who they were and what they were doing and how her pants got muddied, I realized it would be impossible to get all of it in a short story, and that it would have to be a book. I had already begun to tell it through the eyes of the idiot child since I felt that is, would be more effective told by someone capable of only knowing what happened, but not why. William Faulkner got this inspiration from a neighbor who had a brother who was stuck developmentally at a young age, thus allowing him to tell a story of multiple decades, but allowing a narrator to be innocent throughout all of them. Interesting enough, we start the story with Benji, the cognitively challenged Compson child, but he's not actually the most important person in the story. And the most important person in the story we don't ever actually see, which is Caddy. Caddy was described as the daughter of his mind. He said, It began with a mental picture. I didn't realize at the time it was symbolical. The picture was of a muddy seat of a little girl's drawers in a pear tree where she could see through where her grandmother's funeral was taking place and report what was happening to her brothers on the ground below. So we start to see that Caddy represents innocence in this novel. And you'll notice the story starts off in a pear tree, and it has a lot of different meanings. If we look at the Chinese cultures, for example, this can be a symbol of affection. If we look in Christianity, it can symbolize virginity. And then if we look at Zeal Hurston, we can see that it is symbolizing inner peace. And these all have very close ties and similarities, all tied up in Caddy. And Faulkner is going to explore that with Benji representing the pair of innocence, with Quentin representing the pair of virginity, and Jason kind of representing the opposite of inner peace, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So we have this amazing story that is all about these children, and we get the perspective from the three boys, but you will never actually see Caddy's story that's told by Caddy. It'd all be through the eyes of her three brothers, which are going to be very different views. And can you trust the brothers of how Caddy actually was, or are they biased in some way? Caddy begins to represent the objective truth in a way that you'll see in this novel. So for some warnings on William Faulkner, first I actually want to talk about names. The heritage is very important to an individual, and I will put up a screenshot in the description and on screen for a picture of William Faulkner's lineage. And you'll notice that there are multiple people named Cuthbert, multiple people named William, and it's all part of that heritage. And it's not just Southern, it's an older American heritage, still practiced a little bit today, where there's a reflection on the past. And it's, it's very respectful to name family members after other family members or people that are important to you. Yeah, so you'll see that there are two Jasons, uh, you'll see there are two Murrays, two Quintons. There, there's a lot of repeats, so it can help to have a visual aid. And it's very confusing where there's one Quentin that's a male and one Quentin that's a female. And it's like halfway through the novel, they start talking about Quentin being she. And I was like, what happened to Quentin? Why is it she suddenly? Like, like the context is completely missing. So just be aware that he's not just making up duplicate names just to mess with you, though maybe he is doing it to mess with you. He's also playing on heritage and themes of the past. Now, I'm going to give you a link in the description box. I'm going to put a link to the digital Yakna Patafa website. It is a database with all of his novels, all of his characters describing the race, if you're confused. Just be very careful with clicking and reading too much because this database is going to be as if you had read everything and will spoil things for you. So be very careful for how you use it. The last thing you should know about Faulkner is in most of his books, you have some pretty heavy uh, 
trigger warnings that we want to call out here for you as well. So there is loosely an assault on a woman. It's never described. It's never gone into detail, but it is there. And we have the N-word and racism used very liberally in various parts of this book. Yeah, you can't have Faulkner without racism, right? So for narrative consciousness, mm, that's a good word. So for narrative (laughs) consciousness, Faulkner will claim that he tried to keep telling the story over and over and just could not get it quite right. So what's interesting is how he explores this with stream of consciousness with the first three chapters, but the last chapter is an omniscient narrator. So as you start the book, most people will struggle with that first chapter because your first narrator is Benji. And the main thing to know about Benji is that he is developmentally slow and he has the mind of a child. And with that, you're going to get some very unique perspective of how the story will unfold for Benji. So Benji, the pair of innocents, also kind of represents a Christ-like figure, as many critics will write about. One thing the critics don't agree on is how many time periods Benji covers. I've seen anywhere from 7 to 16 time periods recommended for how we break down Benji's section. And while you can't agree on that, what you can agree on is that Benji is a very good camera. So one thing to take into account here is that the camera is just recording everything. It isn't going to give you any emotion. It isn't going to give you any feedback. It's just going to tell you over and over and over what is happening. And that's because Benji's world is all about sensories. So you'll notice that smell, touch, and these things are what's going to just trigger him to jump between different memories and decades of things that are linked for him in his mind. Yeah, so with that, Benji doesn't like change. He's stuck in his ways with Caddy. He doesn't like the change that's happening to his sister as a result. And through this chapter, he will start moaning. And that is a trigger warning for you of what is about to happen to Benji's perception of time. And another thing is you don't really get much racism from Benji. And that's because when you're young and and a child, you don't necessarily recognize racism. It's more of a learned behavior. But that's okay because Quentin and Jason are more going to make up for what you miss out on in this chapter. (laughs) Yeah, they'll... uh... They'll help old Benji out. (laughs) Plenty of awful racism to come. Don't you worry. So the second narrator is Quentin. He is the pair of virginity. And Quentin is a romantic and maybe longs for the old South. He has no mother, but has Caddy as his surrogate. Yeah, I would say that Quentin loves his sister like Narcissist loves his twin sister. It's all about possession and control of somebody. And we have a quote. Then you will only have me. Then only me. Then the two of us amid the pointing and the horror beyond the clean flame. Quentin's thoughts are his downfall. It's his destruction. With no punctuation, he's literally being assaulted with these ideas coming into the present. They're not flashbacks or transports to a different time where you're reliving it like Benji is. He's literally under fire and assault from the past attacking his present. So during his chapter, if you seem confused by this all the things and events and the places and the people and think this is a mistake it's not it was done on purpose so you feel what he is feeling now the third narrator is jason the pair of inner peace or lack thereof because with caddy being gone he does not have his inner peace does he yeah that's for sure i would say he's immoral amoral meaning no sense of right or wrong like a frog or an animal would He knows what's right or wrong, and that's particularly brought out in the last chapter, but you'll see that Jason is not a good person at all. He's a manipulator, liar, abuser. He's A lot of people will struggle with this chapter, specifically the third chapter with Jason, because they need to like the main character, and Quentin is likable. Like He does have some values that that you can associate with. There's not much to associate with, with Jason besides taking advantage of other people. 
Yeah, he kind of represents the ambitious new South. He embraces the Snopes mentality. The South is rebuilding during this time uh, with businessmen and farmers and entrepreneurs. And here comes Jason, who wants to be a banker, and he believes it's all lost because it's spoiled by Caddy and her divorce. His mind is always off in the future on planning and how to manipulate and how do you manipulate, but you have to be one step ahead of someone else, right? And I think that this is where we get into the fact of, as you brought up at the beginning of the video, is he's the favorite son. Coddled by Mrs. Compson's or lack thereof Mrs. Compson's presence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so True. Jason's arrogance is not seeing present or past things while Quentin's is getting lost in them. And I think that's probably one of the main things to keep track of as you read these chapters. And the last thing about Jason really is that you have to remember that he embodies all the problems of the, the Compson family with sexism and control, racism. He is the epitome of terrible. And it's interesting, too, because Maud Faulkner claimed that there was a particular person that he acted like. Uh, Phil Stone claims that he knew someone that, that was Jason and must have been modeled after Jason. I think the takeaway here is that maybe we know people like Jason more often than we want to admit and that we can see that character coming out in Jason. And that brings us to the end of the book, the fourth narrator, which is this omnipresent being that's going to focus in on Dilsey. Follows Dilsey, Easter morning particularly, for those that want to do the religious breakdown, there is the great day of rebirth here. But Faulkner is the narrator and Dilsey is our Watson, who kind of pulls out a lot of the characteristics of this Chapter. Yeah, I really do feel like this unifies all the consciousness of the boys and arguably is the, the soul, the conscious of the entire novel. But in this chapter, you start to see that Jason makes a little bit more of a fool of himself. And it's in this fourth section. It's a little bit more melancholy, a little bit more. You start to realize that the first three chapters are so exaggerating being stream of consciousness. It's, it doesn't matter what happens so much from a stream of conscious narration perspective, so much as what was important. And you get a lot of ideas of what is super important to the Compson boys, and it's in this fourth section when we step back, we start to realize that they weren't actually that important, that the Compson world is very self-contained and self-absorbed and narcissistic in some regards. This fourth chapter kind of lets you as a reader step back and pass more judgment onto them in the decline of this family. So is it showing the truth or the truth as best as we can have it? It's as objective as you could potentially get. <laughs> All right, so for major themes, subjective versus objective truth, the idea is that the stream of consciousness shields us from the truth. All we get is the subjective version of what's important and presented to us. And I think Caddy can be a representative of what the objective truth ought to have been. And I think that's really important why we never get Caddy's story. You'll notice Caddy is never in the present on any of these three days of narrations Every single time, she is the past assaulting the boys. She is the objective truth that the boys' subjective truth cannot grasp or comprehend. And I think that's why this book has such a love and following by people is because it really does show how we view each other differently through our eyes and that each boy sees Caddy very differently. Now, another thing we can relate to is time. I think this is Faulkner's best exploration of time. And narration is typically thought of you know, plot, past, flashback, you know, foreshadowing, prophecy, that sort of thing. Our second video in this series is really going to focus on time and how Faulkner has a very unique way of presenting it. We've talked a little bit about how the past assaults the present, about how the future can't ignore the past and that sort of thing. This is going to be a really good subject that we're going to really explore in the video after our Benji explanation. So I want to talk about our next theme, which is the idea of Old South and New South. Come on over to Crypto's Corner for a 60-second history lesson here. 
What we're talking about when we use these terms, Old South and New South, is that the Old South would be representation of life before the Civil War, where everything revolves around owning slaves, owning land, plantations, cotton, that is wealth, power, control, money, status. And then after the Civil War fought over slavery and states' rights to own slaves, the New South now has to forge a new path into the future without slavery. It's been abolished, and the New South has to rebuild in the Reconstruction era without slaves. Now how do former slave owners and slaves coexist together in the South moving forward trying to be prosperous. We're going to see representations of that really throughout this whole novel. Yes, and we'll talk about money, and we'll talk about Jason's control. We'll talk about his obsession with Caddy, his obsession of controlling his future. Uh, he will blame Lester and his relationship of how he's holding on to the Old South a little bit in his treatment of Lester. All those things will come about uh, in our third video. And the last section, I don't know if we're going to record a video on this. Maybe we'll return to it, but it is a frequently covered one, and that's Christ's passion. The events include the entrance of Christ into Jerusalem, into his last dinner trial, crucifixion, death, and burial. So more specifically, you'll notice that the dates in this novel specifically line up to dates on this calendar. And you'll notice that the characters, such as Benji kind of being a Christ-like figure, as well as uh, crucifixion and such with, with Quentin and other characters, there's a ton of religious symbology and a lot of biblical allusions in Quentin's section specifically, too. We have a couple more things here as well. For example, Benji getting his name changed when he's five years old, and our buddy Jack will go into that in more detail in a video. Uh, we also have the, the Tree of Eden and, and Caddy's fall from it, the pear tree, um, with her innocence and her, her muddy drawers again. Feel free to click that to follow along on the journey. Like I said, we're going to be following up with Benji's video to really break down chapter one for those that are having a hard time with it. We're going to go to a video focusing on how do things look through a lens of time in this novel. And then Old South, New South is a video that I'm pretty excited to go to talk about some of the symbology and how that is manifested in Faulkner's Yaknapatafa universe with. Yeah, so the unique thing here of this breakdown is we're not doing chapter breakdowns like our traditional books. The traditional style of breakdown didn't allow us to facilitate some of the discussion of time in Old South, New South. And we're doing this as a part of hashtag Faulkner in August 2020. Please check out the links down below. We'll have some friends joining us on this journey. Let's buckle up and have some fun with William Faulkner's most popular novel at the least. I hope there are a lot of test questions on this book because I studied hard. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. Please consider hitting that subscribe button if you enjoy literature, adventures, and discussions like this. We'll see you down the road. Peace.